0: Father, I pray again as we come to this tricky passage of Scripture, Lord, that is it's not complex in structure so much as the issues it deals with are issues that are real today and there are toes that may be trod on. And Father, I pray you give me boldness to preach your word, sensitivity as I preach your word, Lord, and I pray that all of our hearts will be ready to hear your word. I pray that the message would be just the preaching of your word, nothing added, nothing taken away, and that through the preaching of your word, your Holy Spirit might work in our hearts, and that you might be glorified. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in our journey through Colossians, we're in chapter 2. We left last week um, around about the end of verse 18. And uh, we will pick up again with this whole section in verse in verse 16. Uh, again, just to summarise, Paul has been emphasising to the Colossians the absolute supremacy and specifically the supremacy and the sufficiency of the knowledge of Christ, and that we who are Christians we have the Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit of Christ. And so we are empowered, and we have all that we need. And one thing that we saw in our Ephesians studies before we came to Colossians was how Paul, from the very beginning of Ephesians, emphasized that we have been blessed with every blessing in the spiritual realms in Christ Jesus. We don't need to seek some other experience, because every blessing that we need, we have. And so the question might be, well then, we're clearly lacking in some way. We're not living perfect lives. If we don't need to get anything else, what is it that we're lacking? And Paul repeatedly in Ephesians told us that the progression from here was not to get more from God, but to understand better what we have so that we can walk in it. And and that simple truth is so key to understanding the Christian life and is so key to defending oneself against a a smorgasbord of various heresies that do the rounds today. Now in Colossians Paul has said the same point as well this this point that we don't need anything else to receive from God that we need to grow in this understanding of what God has already done for us and it came really to a conclusion when we came to the real crux of the book here in uh, chapter 2 and verse uh well let's go from verse 6 where he said therefore if you receive christ jesus the lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving so we're going to walk having been rooted already in Christ, we don't need to be, we've been rooted in Christ, we're going to walk in that and establish in the faith, we're going to continue just as we were taught. Now that's in contrast to what we mustn't do, which is we mustn't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to... uh, human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world. And so there's this false doctrine that comes in that takes us captive that comes from human traditions but ultimately the source behind it is demonic. Now the specifics of that false doctrine we were dealing with last week. Therefore, let no one pass judgment. This is verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but the shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and I'm not going to redo last week's sermon if you want the details from that you can go back and listen to it online but the two elements of the false doctrine were legalism and mysticism legalism being the, adi- the addition of rules the adding of rules to what is commanded to us in scripture and mysticism being the adding of revelation that is not given to us in Scripture. And the two things, as we emphasized last time, have one thing in common. Well, if you look at the modern church today, they might look like extremes. A very legalistic church and a very mystical church would look completely different practically. But essentially, they're the same thing. They're people saying, what I have in Christ and the knowledge that he gives me through the Scripture is insufficient. I don't have enough, I I want to know how I apply these scriptures to my life, can you give me some extra rules please? That's legalism. I want to know the answer to this question that the Bible doesn't give. Can you give me a revelation, a word, some sort of prophecy? That's mysticism. And either way, what we're saying is, what God's done for us is insufficient. And the emphasis that Paul had right the way through Ephesians, which is a sister book to this, written about the same time, that probably was delivered to the Colossian church at exactly the same time. And the emphasis in this book as well is that what Christ has given to us in salvation is sufficient. Sufficient knowledge, sufficient wisdom, sufficient understanding, sufficient revelation, sufficient power. And so churches all around the world are clamoring, and they they spiritualize it. And that's something that we're going to talk about later today as we come to it. But they spiritualize it and make it sound like it's spiritual, like it's more holy. Look at me, I'm more holy, I do these things, I follow these rules, but you don't do them. Look at me, I'm more holy, I know stuff from God that you don't know. God's spoken to me in a way he hasn't spoken to you. And so that is where we ended last time. That's why this person who delivers such things is puffed up. They're puffed up without reason, as we spoke about the last time. There's no reason to this. There's no, it doesn't make sense scripturally, but they're puffed up. It's pride because there's something extra that they have. Now, Before we go on then, with all that context to verse 19, there's one word we left in the previous section. I need to, I don't like leaving words, as you know, in verse 18. He said, let no one disqualify you. Now that's an interesting phrase. Paul doesn't use it very often, but it seems to be talking about, um, well, we use the word disqualify. And Paul makes this connection as well elsewhere in Scripture. the, The word disqualify with regards to races with regards to sport. And Paul talks about being running a race according to the rules and not being disqualified. And it's, it's very simple, you know, in modern sporting terms. Somebody wins a race. In, in fact, just this last week at the, uh, oh, I'm going to get it wrong because my American sport's not quite on par yet, but the NCAAs, the Student Uh, athletic stuff, they've been doing the indoor athletics and some young girl not only smashed the record for 200 meters indoors for uh, students, she also broke the American record full stop except with one footstep she crossed the line. She stepped out of her lane with one step, no record. Doesn't matter how fast she ran. It doesn't matter if it was only the, the smallest of differences and it would have barely made a hundredth of a second's difference. She broke the rules unintentionally. No record. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying there is a danger. That when you take upon yourself, when you are held captive by teaching that tells you that Christ is insufficient, that tells you that you must follow these rules and regulations, or that everybody must follow the rules and regulations that you follow, that tells you that you need to have this additional revelation from God, that you need to listen to see what it is that the Spirit is telling the, the, the church in this age, in this era. When, you, when you're distracted by those things, the danger is you essentially become disqualified. Now let me explain practically why that's the case, okay? If what Paul is saying is true, spoiler alert, it is. If what Paul is saying is true and Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That we as Christians have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we were chosen by the Father, we've been redeemed by the Son, and that all that we could possibly need from God, we have. And if he's right in saying that the way in which we grow and we progress in our Christian lives is by growing in the understanding of what God has done for us, rather than receiving additional things, then if somebody spends the entirety of their Christian life pursuing other things, walking in additional rules, seeking additional revelation, then they're not doing the thing that makes them actually grow. And that's our problem, is that people are getting disqualified from the Christian the, the Christian walk, in the sense that what they're doing it is just like that girl's record, it just doesn't count. The things that we're doing, the efforts that we're making, the, the, the ministry that we're involved in gets wasted. There's church after church after church around this nation that people attend and they love the people there, and they genuinely love the Lord, and they are wasting their time. Just a total, an utter waste of time. Because every Sunday it's about what's the, what's the Spirit saying? What's the Lord doing? Or every Sunday it's about making sure you dress right or follow this rules or do that. And the opportunity for growth is wasted. And that's why I have kind of patiently taken you through Ephesians and now Colossians. It's no accident that these were the first books I did becoming pastor here. Because I want you to be grounded in the absolute basics of the Christian life so that you understand not to pursue anything else, not to get tied up by legalism, but rather to say, let me consider again how wonderful my God is, how he chose me, what he's given me, how he redeemed me, how he saved me, how he gave me his spirit, how he empowered me, and what he's going to do for me in the age to come. And as we gaze upon him, and as we grow in these areas, he transforms us. And that's what we need to be doing. Now, the next thing is verse, we're actually getting to a new verse now, verse 19. The next thing he says is in contrast to this, don't let anyone disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason, and not holding fast to the head. If you insist on asceticism, remember what I told you about that last time? In its most extreme form, that's the whipping yourself on the back so you can be more holy stuff, you know? I've fasted for 40 days, therefore I've beaten myself up and I'm a little bit more holy, that, that kind of stuff. All oh, the, the 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 visions and the worship of angels. If you f- pursue that and if you do that, you're not holding fast to Christ. Listen, the statement here is really simple. The grammar's not complicated, it's not complicated in the Greek nor the English. It, it's just there. If you are pursuing these other things, if you want this additional knowledge, albeit legalism or mysticism, if you are pursuing that, then you are not holding on to Christ. If Christ has given you what you need, then just hold on. Just hold on to it. That's it. Hold on to Christ. But more than that from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So he's saying, he, he could have just simply said, hold fast to Christ, but he doesn't. He says, hold fast to the head, because he's speaking of Christ using the analogy of the body, which he's spoken about in Ephesians, which they probably had read to them just first, maybe even the same day, who knows? And he uses this analogy of the body because if you're not holding to Christ, then the whole body is nourished through him. You could do a simple experiment. I don't recommend it. But if you chop your head off, the body's not going to do well, the rest of it. Okay? You need your head. Right? So, So when we're not connected to the head, when we put aside Christ for the sake of additional knowledge, and we're not holding to him, then firstly, we as individuals aren't nourished. We don't grow. That's what I've been saying thus far this sermon, so I won't belabor the point. But secondly, and this is really interesting, none of us grow. In other words, if you pursue knowledge, aside from Christ, aside from Scripture, then not only do you hinder your growth, you hinder the growth of your congregation. Now, I already mentioned the churches where the entire model of the church is based around the pursuit of additional rules or additional knowledge. And what a what a futile waste and what a sad waste that is. But even for us as individuals, if we don't grow then we don't minister as well, and so we hinder other people from growing. That's how the body works. Now, we spoke about this in Ephesians, when we spoke about the body analogy at length, but it's worth, worth just repeating this now. If you in your Christian walk are hindered, if you're hindered by sin, if you're hindered by wrong thinking, if you're hindered by... Um, by just not holding fast to Christ, then the result of your lack of maturity is that you don't get to bless other people with your maturity, if that makes sense. What what happens as we mature is we become more Christ-like. Now, let's take an extreme example. If you go to a church which is surrounded by people who are completely Christ-like, then that's the church where you're going to get blessed, right? It's the church where you're going to get encouragement, where you're going to to get loved, where you're going to get treated right, where there's going to be kindness, where there's going to be rebuke at the appropriate time and in the appropriate manner, where, where things are operating as they should. But if you have a church full of immature Christians who are walking in the flesh, it's not a good place to be. So our own refusal to do this hinders the whole church. Now, what Paul is obviously concerned about is is this false teacher who's coming in. And he's coming in and bringing in this teaching. And Paul is concerned because he knows if people start believing this stuff, it affects everybody else. The doctrine will spread, the heresy will spread, but the lack of maturity will affect everybody else. Because it's not just that we get nourished from the head, it's that we're all nourished together in one body from whom... The source is is the head. But we're all nourishing each other. Christ is nourishing me through you. And hopefully, right now, Christ is nourishing you through me. That's how the body works. And so, as soon as we step out of that, as soon as we step out of that whole um, place by not holding fast to Christ, by pursuing additional knowledge, then what happens is the body suffers. So that's a good point. Now, verse 20, uh, in the conclusion of this section, he really does finish this off, I think, in style. He says, "If, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all uh, to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Now, this is a great little section. Okay, first of all, notice the repetition from the earlier section. He's linking us to verses eight, nine, and ten, where there we saw that the uh, the philosophy and empty deceit came by. Uh, Human tradition, elemental spirits. We have the repetition of those two things here. Elemental spirits in verse 20, and human teachings in verse 22. And what he's saying here is, is something that really needs to be heard by the church. And this, I think, because it's do not touch, do not handle, do not t- taste, do not touch. This is something that really points more to the legalism. But, so let, let's deal with it there. Legalism thinks it's holy. The Pharisees were the holy ones, right? They were the ones that were holier than everybody else. That's how they saw themselves. They did things that others didn't do. For example, in our studies in Mark, in the evening services, we came across the Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, why is it that your disciples do not fast as our disciples do as we do and those who are training to be Pharisees do we fast and they did they fasted two days a week did Moses tell them to do that nope but they did it and you bet you they're better because of it puffed up look at me I fast twice a week and you are coming like you're the Messiah or something and your disciples don't even live to the standard that we live How can that be? And so legalism thinks it is better than you. It's holier than you. And it gets very hard to argue against because it's always based around circular arguments. It's what we call logically begging the question. They presume that the rule is something you should do. You don't do it, so you're wrong because the rule is that you shouldn't do it. they just to presume the conclusion before they start. They're just going in circles. And church after church after church, legalism is rampant. And, and, and sometimes we think of legalistic churches as being the more traditional ones, you know, people who only use the King James and everybody's dressed in suits and ties. And That's not the case. Human traditions come in all forms. And the most modern of churches are often the most legalistic as well. And legalism is something that thinks it's holy not only is it not holy, look what Paul is saying here. He's saying it's demonic. It's demonic. If Christ died to the elemental spirits, he's already said this, he said this in the middle section of chapter 2, okay? He said, look, Christ has conquered the elemental spirits, the powers and authorities. You know, this was a key theme in Ephesians, he's repeated it several times in Colossians. When Christ... Died on the cross, he conquered sin, and he conquered the power of the enemy. Alright? So if Christ has conquered the enemy, and you are now free from the enemy and the enemy's ways because of the blessings you have in Christ, why are you still living the enemy's ways? And the do not touch, do not taste, these additional rules and regulations, these things, these, these things we're imposing on people, they're demonic the doctrine that finds its source in demons and when we walk in them we're walking as if demons had control now this i mentioned this a few weeks ago in a sermon and i think it's worth repeating because we tend to see demonic things in very horror movie kind of terms you know there's a demon in this place because the window rattled or something like that you know and, and so very outwardly, you know, and there are churches where if, if a kid comes to church and they're carrying the latest Harry Potter book that they're reading in their free time with them, then, you know, they're shown the door, or, every, or at least people look, look down at them like this, what are you doing, you know? Like they're bringing something demonic into the church because they're reading a fantasy book that has magic in it. I mean, you can bring, of course. Chronicles of Narnia magic—that's a different kind of magic. That's all right, but but you know you, you don't don't bring that that demonic stuff in here. You bring your demons in with you. And as I mentioned the other week, you know some Christian churches have problems. You know somebody maybe has been um, travelling in Africa and they come back and there's there's some sort of you know carved engraving on the shelf at home and it's like, oh, was that from witchcraft? What is that? You know, like they brought some demon into the house or something like that. And we're all worried about it very externally. But here's the, the great irony. The irony is, is that the very people who are paranoid about demons are the ones who are operating with the will of demons. They're the ones who the say, oh, you shouldn't read that. You shouldn't touch that. You shouldn't do that. This is dangerous. Keep away. Additional rules, additional rules. And the very act of doing that is demonic. It's a, it's a huge irony. And it needs to be said and it needs to be repeated because, I tell you what, if we've been in church for more than a few years, it's so easy for us to slip into this mentality of you know what, I know the Bible doesn't say it, but we, but we probably should do it, and if someone doesn't do it, then they're probably not walking quite as they should. Now, just to clarify, there are some things the Bible doesn't say not to do that you probably shouldn't do. Sometimes it's taking biblical principles and applying them. But we've all got to do that for ourselves. And sometimes it's just a case of, you know, That's just not wise for me. If you struggle with alcohol, there's no biblical restriction to prevent you from drinking alcohol, but there is to you getting drunk, and if you drink alcohol and then you get drunk each time you do so, you're probably best to stop drinking alcohol. That's just common sense. That's wisdom. That's not legalistic. But what is legalistic is when you then say that everybody else has to do it, or you think that somebody else is less spiritual because they don't do it. That's when we have problems. And the irony, as I said, is that this is not more holy. It's actually more demonic. And again, the source is human precepts and teachings. It's listening to men who come along with their rules and their regulations and their books and their visions and their revelations and not listening to Christ. So if someone says to you, well, you know what, this is exactly how you should raise your child because it says in this book... This is, this is what time you put them to bed and this is, you know, what room they should sleep in and all the little details that the Bible never gives. Then that's listening to man, human teaching. And if someone comes along and says, oh, I had a vision and God showed me this and this and this, you say, I'm, I'm, I'm still busy with the visions of Ezekiel and Isaiah, thanks. You don't listen again to the additions of man because we don't want to be disqualified we don't want to be held captive we don't want to be led astray and so finally here in this verse in verse 23 these have indeed an appearance of wisdom oh boy ain't that the truth it just looks so wise and so smart you know is appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's almost a bit of a crescendo here. He's kind of like, I mean, he's used captive and disqualify and all these terms, and he he hasn't stopped, he just keeps going. He says, this is self-made religion. This is something that you've created. It's not of Christ. You're not holding fast to Christ. Don't give me this Christ, you know, you, if you love Jesus, you'll do this, and if you love Jesus... It's not Christ. It just isn't. It's not Him. And we've just got to be so careful with our rules that we just don't impose things that we have created or somebody else has created. The question is simply Is has Christ created it. Has Christ given that instruction? Has Christ given that command? Has Christ given that revelation? You say, but I want to know what the Spirit's doing. I'll tell you what the Spirit's doing. He's doing exactly what he's done the last 2,000 years. He's working on the back of apostolic teaching and building the church. That's what he's doing. We don't need to listen out for this. We don't need to do this. It's all man-made. It's not made by Christ. So again and again, I say to you this, when somebody says to you, I think God says this, I think God says that, whether it's rules or revelation, ask them this, where is it in the Bible? Where has Christ said it? Where is it? Show me. Reason with me from the Scriptures. Told you just the other week, I remember having a long, long conversation, at a conference with a good Christian friend who knew his Bible really well, and he was like, and I just don't get how you don't think we have to keep the Sabbath. And so, after telling him that he didn't keep the Sabbath because he kept it on Sunday, not Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, having told him he didn't keep it because he didn't stone anyone to death when they didn't keep it, having told him that he didn't keep it because he did different things on the Sabbath that wouldn't have been allowed on the Sabbath anyway, I asked him to show me from Scripture where all this transformation and stuff had happened. And of course, he took me to Revelation 1:10 with the Lord's Day, which is a circular argument. John had a revelation on the Lord's Day. It doesn't mean it was Sunday. (laughs) If you presume it's Sunday, and then you argue it's Sunday, that's begging the question again. Technically, in Revelation 1.10, it says, Lordy Day. It was just a day where, wow, look what the Lord's doing. He's giving me this amazing revelation. An amazing revelation it was. And he totally, after half an hour or so, ran out of answers, and he said, but doesn't the value of church History means something. Churches for centuries have done this and done this. Doesn't that hold some value? Boom. Self-made religion. Now we get to the crux of it. You know, sometimes with legalism, and sometimes with mysticism, people will point you to scriptures that they think support their argument, and if you can accurately and properly refute them and say, well, actually, let's look at the text in context. It doesn't say that. Then always, eventually, at some point, you get to the bottom line. Self-made. Something that we've created. And... It's a self-made religion, Paul says, that is being promoted with this appearance of wisdom, and asceticism and severity to the body. And the last thing on asceticism and severity, before we move on from that for good, there's nothing good about hurting yourself. And I know we know that in an obvious sense, in the sense of, you know, no, I, I'm hoping that no one is going to be like a, a middle-aged uh, middle-aged. Many of us are middle Ages, uh, a Catholic from the Middle Ages, where you go around saying, so um, psh, with a whip, um, psh, with a whip, you know, and you think that somehow you're getting closer to God because you're causing yourself harm. But I do think that sometimes uh, there is a danger of us, because we know that God works through suffering, because we know that God ministers to us and matures us through hardship. I think in some circles, even very good biblical circles, there's almost a mystique that's been given to suffering where it's, it's almost like glorified beyond what it is. I mean, suffering sucks. Let's just be clear about that, right? That's the whole point of suffering. It sucks. It's horrible. God will use it despite it, but it's still pretty horrible. That's the nature of it. And the idea of imposing suffering in any way, shape, or form upon yourself in the sense that in doing so, then God will mature you, is just wrong. God's perfectly able to make you suffer whenever he wants, trust me. You don't need to do it yourself. And he will, in his time and his way, use suffering to mature us. But we don't have to do it to ourselves. And it's not just the extreme stuff, you know. The the fasting one is really interesting. Fasting was something that was required... um, At certain times in the Old Testament Not on a weekly basis or what have you But it was required um, On on certain festivals and feasts And stuff There was was The Day of Atonement most notably Was the time when there was a fast that would go on But You don't see it commanded in the New Testament It's, It's not there Go search, go look It's just not there It's it's not something that was done. You will see references to fasting in the New Testament, but they're references to the time of the ministry of Christ when they were still under Old Covenant. They're references to the Pharisees and their additional fasting. And even in the Old Testament, you look up fasting, you get to passages like in Zechariah, where God condemns them for exactly the same thing. Lord, do we keep fasting? And God says, I never told you to do it in the first place. And yet this this mythology still exists in the church today where people somehow think that by not eating food they're going to get something that God won't give to them. I mean that's all fasting is in most churches. It's I'm going to twist God's arm behind his back by praying. He's not giving me what I want. Let's twist some more. Let's twist some more. I'm praying, I'm praying, and I'm praying, and he's still not giving me what I want. Okay, time to pull out the big guns. Let's do a fast. It's not Christian. It's not biblical. It's not. It's not. It's not scriptural at all. It's the idea that somehow we are uh, we are going to be uh, wiser, get what we want through severity to the body, through asceticism, and again, it is self-made. Now the final point in this passage last half of this verse is perhaps the most damning of all But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh This of all the ironies is the supreme one The person who is pharisaical with regards to their rules and regulations loves rules and regulations those people say, you mustn't be in the flesh, don't watch TV, don't go on social media, don't do this, wear that, don't use that version, live this way, don't dance, don't go to the theatre, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And they're protecting you from being fleshy. They're protecting you from sin. And here's the irony. It gives no protection from the flesh at all. None. None more so, it is an expression of your flesh. Look at the words he's used. Self-made, puffed up, you know, appearance of wisdom. This is the flesh. The person who says, you must live as I do with all these additional rules, they think they're more holy, and they think that you're in the flesh because you don't do them, that you're walking sinfully because you don't do them. And the very fact that they tell you to live by those rules is evidence of them being sinful. I really feel at the end of that section, that's Paul's drop mic moment, really. There's all of this appearance of wisdom, and they're the ones following demons, and they're the ones in the flesh. And in the same way, those who pursue mysticism, well, the indulgence of the flesh in that category of the church is a lot more evident but we see that as well, where people are puffed up and they're pursuing their own uh satisfaction, their own lusts, their lust for knowledge, their lust for control, their lust for, for power, which these additional revelations with air quotes give them. But none of that moves people forwards. So, to summarize the whole passage, Paul has written this book to the Colossians, it's a sister book to the book of Ephesians it's, uh, he's grounded everyone in their theology in Ephesians, he's taking that same theology, the same foundational truths, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the, the blessings that we have in Christ, the hope that we have because of the indwelling Spirit, the power that we have because of the indwelling Spirit, and he's taking those truths and he's building upon that to this specific situation that was affecting the church of Colossae. There was a false teacher, probably one, coming in and he was spreading heresy. It was heresy that looked spiritual. It was heresy that looked godly. Because it involved additional revelation. This is centuries before what became known as Gnosticism. But it became, Gnosticism became very, very popular. And it's popular in the church today. Just this idea of additional knowledge. We need additional knowledge. Additional revelation. All of this stuff coming on board. And this guy came in and he was seducing people. And he was taking them captive and he was disqualifying them by getting them to listen to revelations and quite, we don't know the specifics, but quite probably in that, that context, they were getting revelations that were telling them to do and not do certain things. Angelic messengers, prophecies saying, don't do this, don't do that. And you've got to remember, this book was written during an era where apostles were still alive and the prophets were still genuinely prophesying. Now, that's an interesting thought. But anyways, all of this stuff is coming in. All of this stuff to distract people. And he says, this is going to destroy you. It's going to utterly destroy you. It's demon-led. It's man-made. And it is going to essentially just keep you in the flesh. And guys, we need to keep away from it. And we need to be careful. In a church like this, mysticism is unlikely to arise but we'll keep our eyes open occasionally people will come in and they've had a background of mysticism and we'll watch out for it and we'll assist and help those people if they come in with that false understanding uh, I think one of the areas where mysticism has affected the church greatly is that Um, Even when people haven't embraced mysticism, it's had the effect of bringing in uh, a very old covenant kind of thinking, which I've been addressing multiple times, and I will continue to do so. So we watch for that as well. But we need to watch our backs for legalism. We're always going to have to watch our backs. When I was first interviewed for the job at this church, one of the first things I said was, I don't tolerate legalism. I hate it, I loathe it, I will root it out and we'll get rid of it. It has to be hated as much as avert sins, like you know, sexual sin and these things that, that stand more obviously, that legalism is an abhorrent sin to God, it damages the church, it, it destroys people, it prevents growth, and there's no place for it. None at all. And uh, I'm pleased to, see, uh, pleased to say that I, I see this church not being a legalistic church. You know, we do things in different ways as individuals. I don't see people imposing their ways on other people. And I, I just look out at you and you're also different. And it's nice. It's lovely. It's, it's how it should be. And that's a good thing. But one thing that comes from resisting all this false teaching is the accusation of antinomianism. The idea that what well, you're saying that we don't have to obey those rules, you're saying we don't have to obey those laws, oh, you're so, you're antinomian. you don't believe in laws, you're so, you're so, you're so much liberalism, you know, you're allowing people to do whatever they want, you're allowing people to run rampant. In the same way that Paul in Romans preaches a free gospel, a gospel of grace, a gospel without works, And he preaches it hard. And he preaches it boldly. And he says, there's nothing that you can do to be saved. There's no way you can earn your salvation. You put your faith in Christ and he saves you. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing in any way. And as soon as he's done that, what does he have to do in the next chapter? He says, so do we go on sinning? So that grace may increase? Grace may abound? He has to immediately, because he's saying... It doesn't matter what you do. Christ will forgive your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done. In in the good sense, you can't earn your salvation. And so people will say, well, so can we do whatever we like? And Paul says, no, 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 no. You missed the point and he clarifies. And I feel chapter 3 and verse 1 kicks off a section that does exactly the same thing. It's the same kind of principle. Paul has spent the best part of this chapter dealing head on with the problem and the problem is these additional revelations and additional rules are not godly, they're of the enemy, they're of man and they're not for you. They will harm you and damage you and hinder your growth. You don't have to worry about do not touch, do not taste and all that stuff. And the question then would be, well so what, we can touch whatever we like? We can taste whatever we want? We can live however we want to live, we're free in Christ. And you hear those arguments. People say, oh, I'm free in Christ. I can, I can do this and I can do that. Oh, well, I've got to love people. I don't want, I don't want to love, not love them, so I don't want to be harsh on this or that. Well, if there was any concerns in that regard, we're going to put them right in the next couple of weeks. Chapter 3 and verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. and That's where we'll be next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, how sad it is that 2,000 years ago a church was in danger from legalism and mysticism. And here we are 2,000 years on and churches all around us are held captive by legalism and mysticism. God, may it not be so for us. We know the Colossians were grounded in apostolic teaching. We know the, the, the renown of the love that they have for one another, and yet they still were able to succumb. May we not think it won't ever happen to us, but may we be on our guard. May we rejoice in what you have given to us through your Son. Knowing that it's enough. Trusting you to grow us. To knit us together. To grow us individually. To grow us corporately. So that you might be glorified in your church. Your church. A demonstration to the satanic realm of the conquering work of your son on the cross. In him we pray. Amen.